So, uh, welcome, and a warm, very warm welcome to Julie Williams. Uh, Julie and I, uh, well, I was very fortunate to have Julie on the MRC Neuroscience and Mental Health Forum. That's how we got to know each other um, a, few, a good few years ago. Uh, and uh, just to give you a little bit of background, uh, Julie did a first degree in psychology in, uh, in Cardiff, and, uh, in, and then sort of became, went into more applied aspects of uh, uh, psychology, and then subsequently came into, uh, into genetics, and is professor of, uh, let me get it right, neuropsychological genetics in the MRC Center for um, Neuropsychiatrics, Genetics, and Genomics in Cardiff, which is a, you know, one of the leading centers for uh, uh, genetics in neurodegenerative diseases, particularly Alzheimer's disease. Uh, she's had a varied career, started in uh, studies of genetics of uh, schizophrenia uh, and made some major contributions there, then into developmental dyslexia and then realizing that we're all getting old, obviously decided that uh, Alzheimer's was the thing. And what, uh, and Julie really is now one of the you know, leading international researchers in uh, the genetics of Alzheimer's disease. And what she's been able to do, and you're no doubt here about it, is be able to put together very large consortia because GWAS studies are all very well, but you need large, large numbers of patients and controls. And so she, uh, about, I don't know, what was it, four or five years ago, a huge study <coughs> that, uh, of, of taking all the studies together and looking to see where there were clusters of uh, mutations and identify some clear areas uh, that gave us real clues as to what uh, the different pattern uh, mechanisms that might be taking place in Alzheimer's disease. So, without further ado, many thanks for coming, and she's going to talk on gene the genetic architecture of AD. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, uh, Chris, and it's so lovely to see a, a young audience here. Sorry, I forgot. The last, mostly they oh, I'm sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> the, the important thing to say, and why we're so privileged to have her here, is that in, uh, uh, in two and a half years ago, she was made the chief scientific advisor to Wales. So she is responsible for all the science activities that go on in Wales. And uh, you know, therefore it's exceptionally busy. So sorry. <laughs> and a CV <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. But it, it, it is uh, great to see so many young faces. Because I think it's a really exciting time in, in genetics. And, and uh, I hope to share some most of the information about some really novel findings that haven't been published yet. Uh, but we will come to that. So I'm going to put a little bit of background. I'm sure many of you know this, but just to get everybody up to speed. So I'm going to talk about the genetics of Alzheimer's disease, put just a little bit of background. This is a growing problem. Uh, and uh, although uh, these figures might change slightly, I think uh, Carol Brain published uh, some, some work to show that actually uh, some of the health benefits uh, are reducing uh, dementia, in, in, particularly in males. Uh, we don't know if that uh, applies to Alzheimer's, it's, 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 it's the whole of dementia. But we also have um, other uh, possible uh, uh, problems around diabetes, obesity, so we don't know if that's going to equally increase numbers. I can say definitely numbers will increase uh, over, over the coming years because of population statistics, baby boomers, and people you know, living longer because we're getting good at... at addressing uh, other heart disease, stroke, etc. So there's still going to be a problem. We have markers, we have uh, amyloid plaques, we have uh, tangles, 
those have been uh, uh, very useful in, in marking the disease uh, and have focused attention on elements of that to try and understand the causes of the disease. But I, I would contend that we need to be a little bit um, uh, thinking outside the box in, in a way uh, and look at other factors maybe that could be contributing to the cause of Alzheimer's disease. And I hope to, to talk about that uh, as we go along. So why do I do this? Why, why do we look for, for genes that contribute to disease development? The main thing that we do it for is to pinpoint the primary disease biology. Uh, if you find genes uh, that are associated, we know they're making some sort of primary um, contribution to disease development. They provide, uh, you know, they, they'll then uh, produce a platform for new treatments and preventions. That's obviously what we're most excited about at the end of the day. But also we can look at um, uh, diagnosis, their, their help there, and specifically uh, their help in, in identifying, you know, can we identify people at high and low risk of developing disease by looking at the genetics? And I will talk about that as well today. So the background, uh, in terms of, of the early genetic findings, you know, we have heritabilities of between 58 to 79 percent, depending on, on the particulars of the phenotype. Early onset uh, dementia, you know, it can get up to over 90 percent a heritability for early onset. We have a number of genes that everybody, I'm sure, is aware of. Uh, um, APP and the presenilins have, have many mutations now associated, but they're very, very rare in the population. Before we started, APOE was known uh, as a risk variant. You know, it's been around for 20 years, but it's a, it's a risk variant that is, is very uh, influential. It actually has moderate risk, but that's unusual within uh, the field of genetics. So that was the background that we started with, uh, and we set about finding susceptibility genes for the common form of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and we <laughs> this was about 15 years ago, it took us a long time to actually get those findings that we, we were very confident were true. Uh, and it, uh, we realized that, uh, as, as Chris said, we needed power. We needed to have large samples because it became obvious to us that the, although we knew that genes were playing a role, it's very likely that there were many genes playing small roles. And, and for that reason, we needed to increase the power of our samples, which means we needed to collaborate. So much of what I'm going to talk about today is, is the activity of multiple groups uh, internationally, and I have to commend them, because in the early stages, we were sort of opposing. <laughs> we were all fighting to get our papers out against each other, and we had to turn it all around and realize we need to work together now uh, and not to be so competitive between each other. Not an easy thing to do, uh, but, uh, but it, was, uh, it was achieved. So this was our first publication where we were sure that we found new genes for Alzheimer's disease. Uh, uh, this is clustering and PICOM. And as you can see, you, you needed many thousands to be able to, to say you definitely Got, uh, got enough evidence to say that that is a gene uh, conferring susceptibility to Alzheimer's disease. So you've got about 4,000 cases, 7,000 controls in our stage one, where we looked at, I think it was about half a million different vari variants in each of those people. 
Uh, and then we had a sort of extension replication phase with, again, 2,000 and 2,000 uh, cases and controls. Now, at the same time, in the same um, supplement, if you like, uh, uh, colleagues who are now colleagues of ours, uh, Philippe Amuel uh, and John Charles Lambert, also published uh, a genome-wide association study where uh, they found that the top hit was in clustering, exactly the same variant uh, as us, and they had an additional one complement receptor one. So, so within, um, I think, uh, a, a short time, we had three new genes for, for Alzheimer's disease. So we were quite excited about that. Uh, subsequent papers, uh, again, we always seem to have to publish alongside somebody else. So, you know, I smell a bit of a rat sometimes. I think they, they kept us waiting for a number of months, but it makes a bit more of an editorial impact, I suppose. So, uh, so this again, um, Gerard, uh, uh, our collaboration I lead, uh, and it includes UK and uh, European and American uh, groups. So we got up to just under 20,000 cases and uh, just under 40,000 controls. This is the American ADGC uh, 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 genomics uh, collaboration focusing on Alzheimer's disease. And as you can see, we have several more uh, and very similar ones uh, in these two independent studies. We then um, thought, well, uh, we were working in our own uh, consortia that the best way forward is to bring all those consortia together and IGAP, uh, International Genomics Alzheimer's Project, and sort of you know, run off the tongue very easily, but that's, that's what uh, it was called. And that includes uh, our GERAID collaboration uh, that, I, that I lead, and uh, this is John Charles and uh, Philippe Amuel's French-led uh, collaboration, uh, CHARGE, which is a cohort of heart and aging research in genomics uh, genomic epidemiology, uh, and this is the American Alzheimer's Disease Genetic Consortium I just mentioned a moment ago. So we pulled it all together, uh, and then uh, with a very large study, we were able to get another 11 variants. So I'm just going to pull these together in, in one. Um, so, so this is so these are the genes. Then I think there are about 22, 23 mentioned on here, and just just to explain what we do. So each one of these dots here, this, this is a, a variant on chromosome one, each one of these dots is a case control study. So, so we look at thousands of cases and thousands of controls, and we look to see if there's a difference in the frequency in the particular variant uh, here on chromosome one. Uh, and if we get a lot of evidence, and we do need a lot of evidence, you need probably um, a p-value, something in the region of 10 to the minus eight, uh, to get up that, uh, you know, so, so to, to convince everybody that this is not multiple testing, that you actually have a variant here. And, and this Manhattan plot uh, then uh, reflects all the several, the, the thousands, and these days we can do nine million different uh, 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 tests of association for any one individual. So, so you have to get above that line to say you have uh, genome-wide um, significant evidence of association with Alzheimer's disease. So these are all the genes. I'm not going to go through them here. I'm going to sort of pull them into sensible groups a little bit later. But BIN1 uh, was, was one of the ones that came out originally when we put 
two of our big cohorts again, and that seems to be the, the strongest one out of the risk variants. We can add, uh, there, was a, there was an additional study by colleagues using our data and adding some more data to it. Uh, a TRIP4 was added in, and then TREM2 uh, was added in as another uh, uh, variant. This, this, was, um, this was a rarer variant, but of stronger effect. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. Can I just check this is all yeah. Caucasians? It's mostly Caucasians. There are um, now uh, GWAP studies going on in the States uh, with African-American, uh, but it's about power. And, and when we first started, those were the powerful samples, but we are now taking, you know, others are taking this into different uh, subpopulations. Far East, has that been done? Uh, there is a lot of interest out there, um, and uh, I think, you know, China are very uh, active in, in the genomics area, and we'll see more GWAS coming out, out of, 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 of that area in the future. Uh, so just to sort of pull this together, the genes that I've been talking about here are, are common. It's, so these are pretty frequent variants in the population. So many of you will, will have some of these variants. Uh, and their effect sizes are, of, are quite small individually. So they're, they're challenging to try and model uh, you know, in cellular models or, or uh, animal models. And, and there's a lot of resistance about taking these things forward. But we'll, we'll come back to that. Uh, and trend two, as I say, is, is more frequent and slightly uh, a stronger individual effects. With APO, if you're a APOE4 homozygote, you have, um, you know, you, you've got quite a strong risk uh, there, uh, and it, it's it's quite predictive of its, of itself. And I think 80% um, of people with with that genotype uh, will reach Alzheimer's disease uh, in in their 70s. So, so it's we're beginning to get a little bit more use out of, of the genetics. So, so then you also have the the you know the, the very very rare but very high risk mutations in the presenidins and APP up here. But these are very very rare. Okay, so so that's where where we got to. I'll make sense of it a little bit later. We then uh, undertook a gene-wide analysis, which instead of looking at individual SNPs and looking for association, we looked at the genes themselves and said, is there more evidence for that whole gene? Are you getting more variants in there that are associated than you would expect by chance, and therefore implicating those genes? It's a slightly different perspective. Um, uh, uh, and uh, Valentina in our group took this forward, and then we were able to add another two loci. Now, these are uh, loci with, with a number of genes within those, but these are, are genome-wide significant. Then we can come on to the study that we're, we're currently undertaking at the, the moment. It's an exome chip study. So this is looking at all the coding variants that um, were known when this chip was put together. So it's pulling all those together in a chip and then running everybody through that chip. So we're only really looking at coding variants. And obviously, if you get a coding variant association, you're more, it's more likely to be the functional variant, and it's, more easy, it's easier to model in terms of animal models and cellular models, and they're very likely to be, have, have a stronger effect. So that's why we went on to, to look at this. Sorry it's a bit complicated, but these sorts of designs, because you've got to get the power in 
usually have several stages. So, so this particular study design, uh, we had three of the cohorts there. So you had 6,000 cases in GERAID uh, and some controls, uh, 8,000 in ADGC and some controls, and CHARGE uh, had 1,308,000 controls. So that, that's our main discovery sample. From that, we tested for association with these, these coding uh, variants uh, and found uh, 207 variants that showed uh, moderate evidence of association. We checked these through to see if they were associated with APOE. They were independent of APOE and reviewed their clustering plots for, for quality purposes. Uh, we ended up with 44 variants, uh, which were then taken on to uh, some <coughs> second stages. So that was involving 35, well, nearly 36,000 uh, individuals that we genotyped for those 44 variants. We then also tested them in, in silico um, uh, data that was available from CHARGE and ADC. So there's another 4,000 variants in 15, uh, and those were then uh, checked in those particular data sets. So it's a combination of genotyping and checking uh, what you know, data that were already out there for, that, uh, for association. The whole uh, uh, design involved just under 90,000 individuals worldwide. So, so what we, and I'm afraid I can't tell you all the, 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 the details, I hope you understand. Uh, we have um, one particular variant that's, uh, that's in this region, uh, and this variant is a protein coding change. Uh, uh, I think the p-value for this one is about 10 to the minus 10, so it's, it's pretty convincing uh, that it's genome-wide significant. This particular variant, um, I think, is the one that is protected. So if you have this rare variant, and it's a coding variant, it protects you uh, against developing Alzheimer's disease. We have another variant. Um, also a code, protein coding variant that is a risk variant uh, for Alzheimer's disease. And then uh, we also find uh, evidence with the known trend to uh, variant, uh, and you're looking at uh, you know, uh, p-values that are 10 to the minus 20. Sorry to interrupt. Is the reason these don't come up on the original genome simply that they're not picked up by SNPs? Or is there a more complex reason? Um, I, I, it's probably a combination of, of uh, power. We can impute them, and we have imputed them in, in the, the final data set. I, I think imputation has got better. We may not have got, have got these because of, of previous imputation. Uh, but, um, but we've also got a much bigger data set, and it's not exactly the same data set that we would have used for the original GWAS. So it's probably a combination of the two. But what, what, is, what is also interesting is we have another variant within TREM2 now that is genome-wide significant. It's, it's protein coding, and it's common. So it's about 12%. You'll be able to find that out um, now that I've given you that information. But it's, so it's more common, which, which is interesting. So I think this combination finally gives us better traction on trying to model this disease, both in terms of cells and in terms of animal models. 
And I think we are now going to see a much speedier um, uh, 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 race to, to, to find out what these do in terms of methods. But one thing I will tell you, which I think is most exciting, they all implicate microbial activity. All of them. So that's an enormous clue, I think. And I think it will help us understand the common variants uh, coming at uh, th these rarer variants. And we're modeling pathways based on some of the common uh, variant pathways. And we're getting a lot of correspondence between, between the two sets. And we've brought it down to about 56 genes that, um, that can, you can see a number of potential pathways that could be implicated here. And I think when you're looking at targets, that's going to be enormously exciting to look at the whole pathway. Because you may not be able to produce a drug target from the one that you've got uh, susceptibility with, but if you know what, what happens in the pathway, you may be able to come in at it from a different angle, as it were. So we're beginning to get a much better understanding of Alzheimer's by looking at the genetics. Yep. Sorry, I was just wondering, is there a most common combination that you would find if you take, uh, let's say, 20 sporadic Alzheimer's disease patients and you would screen for all these variants, will you find sort of a common combination that they have that then could confer a Okay, so, so, so this is probably asking is there an interaction between yeah. some of those variants. It's been very difficult to point out any interactions from, from GWAS. We haven't looked at the interactions from this yet, but when we've looked in the past, uh, because of the power you know, you're doing, if you're looking at every SNP compared to every other SNP, it's very difficult to pull out those relationships. But I think if we if we start looking at the pathways and asking more intelligent questions of, of what they possibly might do functionally, we might pull out those those pathways. Uh, where, where you get uh, real increase in risk when you have com you know, specific combinations. So, so it's a very good question and something that we should look at. What we're doing is a very simple thing now, is looking at the total polygenic score. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. Could you, and could you possibly also interrogate something like this with RNA-seq? Let's say, look at differential expression levels uh, yes. from these, and yeah, sort of more functional idea of the pathways Yes, and I think that's the, that's the next step. Now we're, we're already, I mean, we've seen correlation with, with the the variants, the coding variants we found. They actually correlate in terms of their expression yeah. uh, in, in disease-relevant models and, and in human brain. So yes, now we have to bring all of that information together to try and, and pick what may be relevant and what may not be. But we also need to go to the lab, I think, to really pull them those uh, answers out. True. But it's a good question. Okay. So we undertook a, a pathway analysis to try and uh, you know, look at what uh, functional components we may be able to pull out of these genetic <coughs> findings. So with a pathway analysis, we don't just look at the genome-wide significant genes. We look at everything in there that is possibly associated. Now, we know there will be noise in there. But if we can pull out patterns and we can test them you know, statistically uh, for more than you would expect by chance, you can see uh, if there are functional relationships. So that's, that's what we've, uh, we've done, Peter Holman's, um, Leslie Jones in, in, in my lab. And this is what uh, we've come out with. So uh, the, the, the variants that, that are 
more likely to, to be there uh, when, you, when you compare them to chance in, in these particular functional pathways uh, implicate the immune system. And, and that, um, what we've done here is look at those within the GWAS, uh, and then if you take out the GWAS, the genomide significant variants, is there anything left? And that there appears to be something that we haven't found in the G, you know, that have not come up uh, as genome-wide significant, uh, but also that that is significant. So, so the immune um, system is implicated, endocytosis is implicated, cholesterol transport, implicated um, ubiquitin. Now, we actually don't get any, any one of those that is genome-wide significant, but, but it's, still, it's still showing some evidence of uh, that particular pathway being Im important, and, and, and this again is endocytosis and something on protein folding. So, so it's beginning to look quite interesting, and if, if you briefly look at um, the, the general uh, 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 particular genes, you see you've got complement receptor 1 and clustering, you know, implica implicating uh, both innate and um, adaptive immune response. So, so that's telling me there's probably something peripheral and central going on. So, so that, that's another element that we need to take in, into account. There, these are the genes uh, that so far we have uh, identified that uh, implicate immunity. I'm not going to in, into the detail, I don't have time. And the new genes, the, the protein coding ones, also implicate uh, particularly microglial activity. So, you know, that's, that's a hell of a coincidence. You know, there is something going on here. That, and, and immunity and the difference in your immune response, that's the, that's the, that's the important fact to, to, to uh, assimilate. It's that yeah, people with Alzheimer's disease have differences in their immune response that, that uh, are directly relevant to the development of the disease. This is an old slide. I, I, I pulled it out because um, there was a subsequent paper published a couple of weeks ago that I'll also talk about. The first bit here is really looking at uh, cholesterol transport. Um, and, and, you know, the cholesterol is... Uh, is uh, uh, developed as, uh, as were in, in astrocytes, uh, and it all comes down uh, through endocytosis to the health of synapses. And I think that is, is a, something we, we really do need to focus on in Alzheimer's disease. Uh, when we first found uh, 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 these particular associations, uh, I was conscious of this particular paper by Ben Barris talking about synaptic pruning. So, um, so this has been shown by me for many years. I was so delighted in science uh, in the last couple of weeks. This particular paper, again, uh, Ben Barris uh, and uh, David uh, Denselko, uh, looked at mouse models uh, and found that uh, actually, uh, with soluble A-beta, um, the first uh, changes that you saw in these mouse models with, uh, when you looked at complement and microbial activity, was synaptic pruning. So the synaptic pruning predated the deposition of amyloid plaques. So this, this was a primary event, uh, and, and then uh, thereafter the, the other markers that we see of, of Alzheimer's disease, presumably. So this synaptic pruning now has got evidence. What we need to do now is to look at the variants that we've observed that uh, implicate complement activity. 
and see if we're getting the same sort of effect. Are we getting synaptic pruning with those, with or without um, uh, soluble beta amyloid? Because it could be that this is where <laughs> these things are, are converging, that, that you, uh, okay, you need lots of soluble amyloid uh, that, that, that has a, a disease effect. Uh, but the disease effect may be, may be on synaptic pruning. And the, with common Alzheimer's disease, you have problems, you have variations, you have variants within the complement system that has the same effect on synaptic pruning. And this is where we're getting convergence, possibly. So I think we need to start thinking out of the box. And, and maybe what we see with amyloid may be some, somewhat secondary in terms of amyloid deposition. Still an important part of the disease, but when you're looking at primary events, this, this is, I think, uh, very, very interesting. Endocytosis is, is another um, uh, set of functions that, that, are, that are implicated uh, by the genes, and endocytosis is, is the way you bring large molecules into cells in vesicles, uh, and we have, uh, you know, PICOM will recruit clathrin, and, and, and you know, it's, it's, they have particular functions. BIN1 is also implicated, CD2AP, CD33 is really uh, annoying because we found it as genome-wide significant, others found it when we put both data sets together, it just dropped below the genome-wide significance level, but I think it's probably there. So there are a number of, of those genes that are implicating this process of endocytosis. The, uh, you know, what, what happens in these early uh, vesicles possibly may be uh, important. Could possibly be a marker for the bicyclo precursors of progenitors? Could, could, what's CD33? Because it's a kind of stem cell for hemocytic Parkinson's disease. It, it, it's, it's possible. I, I, I mean, there are lots of possibilities here that, that are thrown up by, by uh, these, these findings. It may not be that it's to do with endocytosis as such. This is just uh, it may be more to do with microglial activity. But <coughs> what was interesting for, um, it, uh, um, about PICOM, that this was, was published, uh, I think, a year ago, and what they did is look at the actual variance, the risk variance uh, for PICOM, and they found that uh, it, it reduced the amount of PICOM, which had an effect of reducing uh, transcytosis uh, over the endothelial from inside to outside and that was specifically related to the transport of soluble beta amyloid out of the brain. So, so this implicating PICOM uh, in, in terms of clearance of amyloid from, from the brain. But what's interesting is that particular variant, the risk variant that we identified, what was uh, had that activity. I'm sorry about my, uh, my cartoon here, it's not very good. But uh, this is just to so, show that you know, ubiquitination is also uh, implicated, and again, within uh, endosomes. And, and this is what marks up uh, uh, um, substances, if you like, for further, uh, uh, either it maintains it or, or it uh, uh, destroys those substances. So it's, 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 it's a clearance, tidying up sort of activity that seems to have resonance with other activities implicated. Okay, so takes it up to the lysosome. And what's going on in the lysosome is very interesting too. Uh, and and uh, I, 
uh, I think that's another area of, of focus for further activity. So now I go on to other ways that we can use the genetic information that we've got from genome-wide studies. And this is the polygenic score analysis. Uh, I just want to show you, uh, you know, something you already know, but when we're trying to identify people that are in the early stages of developing Alzheimer's disease, it's very difficult to, to pull those out. We, we, we look at mild cognitive impairment, but these people are already impaired. What would be ideal is to identify people some 10 years before they develop memory symptoms who are really in the early stages by looking at uh, elements of risk. Can we do that with the genetics that we have found? So this is what we, we try to do, to try and identify people that are way down here before uh, you get any evidence of um, uh, symptoms of, of dementia. And again, we use the whole of uh, anything that showed any sort of association with Alzheimer's disease, any of those variants. Um, this shows uh, the validation step. step. We, what we did, we looked at about 35,000 cases in controls, looked at all the genetic data, as I say, that showed association, pulled out an algorithm based on about 85,000 variants uh, that, uh, that, we, that, that seem to predict uh, your polygenic score, the, the, your risk of developing the disease. And then we tested it in an independent sample uh, and we got some separation. So uh, you can see uh, that you know, in here you, we may not be able to predict terribly well, but at the, at the extremes we, we may well be able to predict. So if we can find individuals at those extremes, those at the very highest or at very lowest, those may have utility in looking at imaging, looking at them clinically, um, producing stem cells from, you know, from them and, and modeling what they, they can do. Because these have very, very highly loaded risk. And we can do the same for those uh, that have high load in immunity or in cytosis. We can look at pathways as well and look at those that have all the risk factors and compare them to those that have none of the risk factors. So there are lots of possibilities here. And just to see if this scale there, is that arithmetic or logarithmic? Gosh. Um, it, it's it's standardized scores, so, so it's a standardized normalized scale. Um, so what we have here, sorry about the, the table, if you look at the area under the curve, that's the bit, that's, that tells you um, how often you get it right. So, so looking at APOE on its own, the E4, we get it right 68% of the time. Uh, when we add in the, the, the GUAS SNPs, the genome-wide significant SNPs that we knew of then, that gets better, we get it right 71.5% of the time. When we add in the polygenic scores, we get it right, right down to adding in um, all sorts of stuff. Uh, and when we add in age and sex, that's when we get the best area under the curve. So we can get it right 78% of the time, which is not bad uh, looking at all of those variants. And that's, uh, as I say, it's um, 87,000 actually, uh, variants that, that we've used to, to, um, to, to get that. 
and, and all of those steps are significantly different from the other ones, okay? But what is most interesting is, is when you try and separate out and you look at the extremes, you know, there's a great separation there if you go to, to the extremes of cases and, and the controls. So uh, you can get it right about 90% of the time if you're predicting the really high and the really low. One thing that I found was interesting, and I just want to show you this, is uh, when you chop that prediction up by age, um, your best predictive area under the curve here, uh, when, when, when you're looking between 60 and 69, you can get it right nearly 80% of the time, and then that drops off between the 70s and, and 79 ages there. And that's not a power, you know, you know you've got actually less power there to, to detect those differences. So, so this is most accurate in, in, in that age group. Interesting. Okay, so coming to the end, conclusions. So we now have identified uh, 30 genes or genetic loci that contribute to Alzheimer's disease development. And they're hel helping understand the, you know, the, the biological underpinnings uh, of the disease, implicating immunity, inflammation, endophytosis, cholesterol transport, ubiquiting uh, as, as part of processing pathways. We have three novel protein coding variants, two that uh, uh, our risk, increase your risk, and one which is protective. Uh, significant polygenic components, uh, and we tested that, I didn't mention that, and that um, it's using this polygenic score, it's highly predictive at the extremes. So where next? So we want to exploit the polygenic extremes and the protein coding variants, creating stem cells, uh, as we mentioned, uh, uh, and also uh, in, the, in the general um, uh, polygenic pathways or using the co coding variants. We would explore the mechanisms, look at biomarkers, clinical features, uh, and create drug models with, with uh, both polygenic extremes and uh, the coding variants, uh, and seek high-risk patients for uh, preventative trials in the future. We also want to take these into epidemiological cohorts, and perhaps we can use DPUK to do that, to, to look at some of these genes or, or pathways and to see if you get interactions actually with environmental components as well. You know, if you do exercise with a certain genetic profile, does that have more of an effect, etc. For us, in terms of the genetics, um, we're waiting for whole genome sequencing to get cheap enough to do anything with. Uh, and we have uh, lots of data that we can use to, to put through this process. Because I think there will be, there'll be variants outside the coding regions which will also be important in disease development. They're more difficult for us to interpret, but it's an area that we need to, to go into. Extreme phenotypes, we are collecting at the moment thousands of early onset Alzheimer's cases, because I think we're more likely to find these rare, possibly coding variants that are really going to take uh, 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 the, the, the whole research area on uh, and hopefully make it easier for the molecular biologists and the immunologists to understand what all of this means. The last thing I'll say is that actually in, in, the, in the GWAS studies, I think one of the problems we have got is that our, our, our controls uh, 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 cohorts are very noisy 
uh, and I would really like to collect uh, a set of very elderly, well controlled, so that we can uh, really hone down and increase the power and precision uh, to detect some of the genes that we should be detecting. Uh, in terms of schizophrenia, for example, with a similar size case control study, they've got over 100 genes. We should be detecting that, and I think our controls are one of the reasons that we don't, because that they, you know, many of the controls are similar ages to the cases, but they still are, uh, you know, segregating many of the risk factors. We need to have a really clean set of controls. Uh, and just finally, to to thank all the people that contributed to this, and I haven't put everybody on there, and to thank you for listening. Thank you.